Uh, so we'll be in Second Peter chapter two, Second uh, Peter chapter one today, and just to give some context as always to Second Peter, Peter is writing right before his death, probably around the year AD sixty, and he's writing to a group of Christians who have been scattered and. And there's this form of false teaching that has infiltrated the church. It's probably an early form of what we today know as Gnosticism. And we get this word Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And these Gnostics claim to have a superior type of knowledge above and beyond what was given in the word by the apostles. They believe they had some direct, mystical, spiritual revelation that was separate and beyond what the apostles wrote. And so we see these false teachers, first they denied the second coming of Christ, which we see in 2 Peter chapter 3, and it seems they scoffed at the return of Christ to judge the world. They also abused the grace of God and assumed that God's grace gives them the freedom to do whatever they want, which we see in 2 Peter chapter 2. And their bad theology And this is what happens when you have bad theology. Your bad theology shows up in wrong living, in sexual morality here, excessive drinking and eating, greed for money, arrogance and rebellion against authority. And so you imagine if you're like a young believer in the first century and this teacher who comes in, this outside teacher comes in who seems strong and capable and confident, and he says, I could give you the secret knowledge of God. Listen to us. Be initiated into our group. The apostles only gave you part of it. We can give you the fuller picture so that you could truly know who God is. We'll give you all the secrets. You need more. You need more knowledge. And you can see why, in some sense, that might sway a young believer. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, you know, I'm not going to live very long. He knows he's going to die soon. So if there's one thing I want to do before I die, I want to make sure, I want to start in 2 Peter 1, that you have right teaching that also leads to right living. Those two have to go together. And he says in chapter 1, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to keep reminding you so that when I'm gone, you'll be able to not only battle false teaching, but continue growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's a reminder for all of us already that anyone who says the gospel is not enough. Scripture is not enough. You need more. You need to add on. You must have some kind of mystical experience. You must have the next level baptism, the next level of Christianity, deeper secret knowledge. We hear that all the time nowadays. Nothing's really changed in 2,000 years, just how we label it. And so Peter is going to remind these believers on some of the fundamentals of the faith, especially in regards to knowledge. So let's read in 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll read all the way from verse 1 through 11. This is God's word, verse 1, 2 Peter 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's so much packed into this passage. There's so many clauses, and it's so full of truth. But let me just give a quick or a little structure, just some key words that will help us like outline the sermon. 
Okay, so if we could put it up there. Uh, this is sort of the outline of the sermon, and I'll just go through these words to help us give a, just a little bit of structure there. Knowledge, power, promise, effort, and then we'll close with assurance. Okay? These are key words from the passage. And so starting with knowledge, and you can argue that this is the key word of this passage in the entire book of Second Peter. He says in verse, one, uh, verse 2 through 3, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Later he talks about through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and ex- excellence. And he emphasizes this word knowledge again at the end of the letter, the very end of the letter in 2 Peter 3.18. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all of us, I think we could say, we want grace and peace. We all want that, but how do you get that in the knowledge of Jesus and God? That is the source of all things like grace and peace. And by grace, by God's grace, he has given us that knowledge of himself. He has shown himself to us. He has revealed himself to us. God is knowable. He is personal. We can know God through Christ. Not in a superficial intellectual way. This word knowledge means a deep and intimate knowledge of him. That's how you start the journey of faith. That's how you'll progress, to know him And to keep growing in knowledge of him, to know him deeper. And so how do we know him? In Romans chapter 1, it says that first, God has revealed himself through creation. We know this as the book of nature. He revealed himself through nature. We call this also general revelation. In general ways, we could see, you look at creation, you look at nature, you see the power, you see the deity of of God. The book of nature gives us knowledge of God. But if you only looked at the book of nature, you wouldn't know the gospel. You wouldn't know who Jesus Christ is. You won't know his will. And so God, on top of general revelation, just his general truths that we see in nature, he's given us what we today, theologians, call special revelation, which we call the Bible. And the more you go through the Bible, the further you get into it, the more you will see, the more you will progress in your knowledge of Christ. Like if you start in Genesis chapter 1, you'll see that he's the creator, but then you get to Revelation and you have so much more of a fuller picture. We don't see God, but we have heard plenty from him. He's given us a library and he has not been silent. He has not left us in the dark. God could have just created us, walked it away, walked away, and then we just we don't really know who he is. But he has revealed himself to us through his word. It's not when we read the Bible, it's not just to like make us feel good, but to reveal the truth of who he is. It's not an abstract or academic exercise. It's not an intellectual pursuit, but so that we might know him. In his fullness, we might know the Savior. But it's honestly so rare nowadays to see Christians who have a passion to know him through his word. To study the word, to study what we call doctrine, to study theology, which is the knowledge of God, to study who God is. Every Christian is called to be a theologian, to study God, and we all are theologians, whether we think we are or not. We have an understanding of who God is. It's not a matter of if you have a theology or not, but whether you have a sound theology or a false theology. And it's becoming more and more common nowadays where we see Christians who say, you know, we don't need all that doctrine stuff. We don't need all that theology stuff. I just want to know him. I just want to have a relationship with him. Doctrine divides us. All I need is my relationship with Jesus. And oftentimes we want grace and peace, but it's not connected to a knowledge of Christ. But do you think it's important to know God according to the truth of his revelation of himself? Do we need to know God's truth to know him, to have theology that is correct? Or does that just sound like, oh, that should stay at the university level, the seminary level? There is a relationship between knowledge and love, to know someone and to love someone. The more you know someone, the greater your capacity is to love them. 
As we seek to know God through His Word, we seek to love God. That's theology. That's what theology is. And we get a we understand this on a human level better than we do on a God level. It's very like here's a very simple, like sort of silly example. Imagine you're single, you went, ladies, you went on a date, and you start sharing your heart, your fears, your discouragements, your hates, your loves, your background. And 15 minutes in, your date stops you and says, you know, I don't need to know all this stuff about you. My idea of relationships is organic and natural. I don't need to know this knowledge to love you. All these details make it hard to love you. And that's his approach to love. And he's completely sincere about it. Ladies, would that be like he's getting a second date? Obviously not. He's missing something if he thinks he can love you without actually knowing you. That type of definition or that type of love is false. We can't talk about loving someone if we're not concerned with knowing them. And we get that on a human level, but for some reasons with God, some reason with God, we think the details don't matter much, but they do. That's what doctrine is, the details of who God is. Doctrine is answering questions like, who is Jesus? And that matters because you can't have a relationship with him until you understand who he is. How can you love him if you don't know what he's like? And on the flip side, just a quick side note, God's love for us is always based on a full knowledge of us. He knows you and he still loves you. We are deeply known and yet we are deeply loved. That's God's love. It's not separated from knowledge. He is knowable by you. I heard someone's testimony this week where they were sharing that, how did they know Christ? How did they come to know Christ? It wasn't even through a preacher. It wasn't even through an evangelist or a friend. This person just read the gospel of John. And they started to see who Christ was. That's exactly why John was written. You could go to the Word of God yourself and know who he is. It doesn't have to be through a preacher. In fact, there's something lost if the only time you're hearing and learning and growing in knowledge of God is through the preaching because when you hear me, you're hearing an echo. You're hearing what God said to me. But you can go to Scripture yourself and know him. That's the point. That's the goal. And what does Scripture say we need to know regarding the knowledge of God? We need to know the majesty and excellence of who Christ is. That's where it starts. You have to see not just who He is, but you see glory. When you know Christ, this is what you need to know to know Christ. You have to understand and know that Jesus lived a righteous life. You have to know he died as God in human flesh. You have to understand that he died for your sins. And you know and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead and he is Lord of all. And that you can't just profess with your mouth, but believe in your heart. You have to believe in Jesus and say, I turn away from my sin and I trust in you and I will give my life to follow you as my Lord. That will bring you into a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. When you see the glory and you are drawn by his excellence. That's the only way you can be saved, to have a deep, intimate knowledge of Christ. You know, Satan doesn't mind. I bet he actually revels in the fact that you read your Bible to just get a bunch of moral tips. I'm just going to go to a part of the Bible. I don't actually need to know anything about God, but it helps me live a moral life. Because all Satan cares about is he wants to keep you blinded to the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what Satan doesn't want you to see. And so at our church, we're not going to try to draw you in with promises of happiness, promises of good times, not even promises of heaven. What has to draw you here is the vision of Christ becoming clear. You see him, you see his glory. You don't just see a person, you see the glory of Christ. 
his weightiness, his value, his worth. Doctrine or theology is not just something to be accepted. It's something you have to experience. Don't tell me you know about Christ. Just believing the right things about Jesus won't save you, but you have to experience those truths. But why does Peter, in our passage, talk about a multiplication of grace and peace? Because for believers, we see in part, but our faith can be strengthened. It can be increased. We continually move from grace to grace, faith to faith, life to, from life to life. We are called to go deeper and deeper into what we already know. And I have to just say, like, there's something weird to me when I feel like we feel like the Christian life is boring. Because I think if you're going deeper and deeper into the knowledge of Christ, there's always something exciting about it. Do you need, if you come here, do you need to learn something new for a sermon to be relevant and interesting to you? To hear something you've never heard before, then and only then is it really important. You need to have a preacher who is so creative. He brings and he thinks outside of the box and says stuff that no one else has ever said. Our job here is not to present new and interesting ideas, but to remind you again and again of the basic fundamental truths. And you need to walk away from every Sunday not thinking, did I learn something new, but do I believe it? Do I believe it? Am I living it out, what I just heard in my soul, or is it just at the surface? One of the biggest enemies of the seasoned Christian is familiarity. None of us, honestly, are as God-centered as we think we are. None of us are so advanced when we get beyond the basics to get on with more advanced things. I heard this, I didn't know this is what the word means, but I heard this week that the word sophomore, do you know what the word sophomore means? It means wise fool. Wise fool. Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, when you're a freshman, you know you're a fool. When you're a sophomore, you think you know enough to be dangerous. You think you're wise, but you're not. And I honestly think a lot of us can be convinced that we are wise because we have this intellectual understanding of the gospel, but we're foolish because we're not actually as mature as we think, and our spiritual IQ doesn't match our spiritual I do. I got that from somewhere. I forget where. Okay? That's sort of a cheesy phrase, right? But our spiritual IQ doesn't match our spiritual I do. That's honestly the case for pretty much all of us. And we start to think, you know, like, I remember this story from, like, 2004 where there was this uh, Olympic, like, rifle shooter, and his name was, like, Matt, Matt Emmons, I think, and he was on the brink of gold medal. And all he needed was, like, a, a 7.5 on his final shot. And so he goes up to the box, he's in box two, and he shoots, and he, he hits the target, almost bullseye, enough to get him, like, a 9.0, but the score came out zero. Because he accidentally, when he looked up, he shot a bullseye on the wrong target. And obviously he ended up with zero. He lost it. And that's oftentimes how I think we approach Christianity. It's not like ready, aim, fire. It's just ready, fire, aim. It's like, oh shoot, did I hit the right target? Because the target of the Christian life is not for you to be biblically intelligent. It's not even to have spiritual highs or mystical experiences or I need to have spiritual experiences. It's not even to get close to the church. We may hit those targets and think, man, look how mature I am. Look how much Bible I know. Look how much theology I know. Later, recognizing we are hitting the wrong target the entire time. But the target Scripture lays out for us is to know Him more. Paul says in Philippians 3, nothing else compares to the knowledge of Christ. Jeremiah, reading from uh, chapter 9, verse 23, verse 24, says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, let him who boasts boast in this 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I, de- I delight, declares the Lord. This is the only thing worth boasting or exulting in, knowing Christ. That's the goal. It's not to file away more information so we can feel good about ourselves or impress people with our knowledge. I want to know him more. I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want grace and peace to be multiplied in the knowledge of Christ. Are you enrolled in the school of Christ? Do you know him? Do you have knowledge of the excellence and glory of Christ? Are you a Christian? If so, are you progressing in the knowledge of him? Are you moving from faith to faith, grace to grace? Is it abounding? Is it multiplying? Are you growing? So let's talk about that. How do we grow in the knowledge of Christ? Because, like, what's the pathway to spiritual growth? And immediately, some of us may already be cynical. We've heard sermons on growth, but you need to listen to this passage. And so starting with knowledge, now moving on to the key word power, verse 3. Verse 3 to 4 is going to give us the foundation for the rest of this passage. Verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And talking about this divine power, it says because of this divine power, we have all things. Think about that. All things pertaining necessary for life and godliness. You're not missing anything if you have the knowledge of Christ. You don't need more beyond that. And God doesn't just save and then, you know, give you fire insurance and then he stops there. He gives you power to obtain godliness. Those always go together. We call those salvation and sanctification. Being saved and growing in the knowledge of Christ. If he saves you, he'll sanctify you. If he sanctifies you, he'll glorify you. It's all-encompassing. From now till eternity, you have all that you need. You're not missing anything. You don't need more outside of Christ. And it's been granted to you in the Greek word, in the Greek, that word granted, it's in the perfect tense. It's a past event with ongoing, continuous effects. It's all sufficient. We're not under-resourced. We're not underpowered. We have everything we need. If you've ever gotten a gift, and it drives me crazy, I have like one of the f- most fun gifts like my, kid, my kids have gotten is like these remote control cars. We have like six of them. And, you know, they're really fun, but they're really frustrating. You know why? Because they, we could play with them for like 30 minutes, and then like a day later we've lost the chargers. Or they say they don't come with batteries. You know, have you ever gone something where, like, batteries are not included? And it's just like, oh, nice, I could look at this toy. And they, now my son, instead of p- playing with the remote control car, he just uses it as a normal car. It's useless now because we don't have the power to charge it up anymore. And we literally have, like, six of them. I'm just like, we can't even play with one of them. I've lost, we've lost them all. That's not how our faith is. If your faith is not growing in godliness, it's not because you lack the resources. It's the absence of your will to stay connected to him. God has given us everything we need in Christ. One pastor named John MacArthur, he points out that Christians can never experience a power failure. You can unplug yourself, you can get unplugged, you can turn the switch off, but the power never fails. It can't, it's there. It's been granted to you the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And this word power is the word dunamis, dunamis. I think we know what word we get from that, dynamite. His overwhelming power has called you. You were dead in your sins, but his power entered your life 
Before we were Christians, our heart was bent to rebel against God. That's the natural desire of the faith. We were on the course of this world, but his power came into your life. He changed your desires. He touched your heart. He made you alive. He revealed the glory of Christ so that you believe in him, and now you're no longer in the course of this world. If you believe, it's because he drew you to him, because you would not believe otherwise. And when you came to the knowledge of Christ, his power grants to you all things pertaining to godliness, to your sanctification, to progressing in the faith. God, again, didn't just save you and leave you. He's not saying, I'm just going to get you to heaven, but leave your life unchanged here. He's given you all things for life and godliness. And let me, let me just remind you of this. Are you feeling weak and powerless? That's probably how Peter's readers felt. They're weak, they're weary, they're being attacked. And Peter reminds them, you have divine power. You say, I'm not going to make it. Peter says, you have divine power. You say, I feel so weak. And God in 2 Corinthians 12 says, boast in that because my power is made perfect in weakness. It's when you're weak, then I will make you strong. God has given you everything you need. He's given you his power, his divine power, not just to start the Christian life, but to keep going and to one day complete it. Remind yourself right now that God has given me all I need. Divine power, that's the first part of our foundation for growth, God's power. Secondly, his promises. Verse 4 says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption, corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. When you come to a knowledge of Christ, you receive and are also granted his precious and very great promises. Precious in terms of value. They're not rocks you find in the street. It's the diamond that has no flaws. That's the picture here. And what are the promises we have received in the gospel? In this passage, it's talking about our liberation from the world, being freed from sinful desire, that you could participate in a divine life of holiness, that you have been set free. If you're a Christian... Oftentimes we think, you know, there's three Ps, right? There's uh, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Penalty, power, and presence. We, as Christians, it may be more easy for us to believe that we've been set free from the penalty of sin, our past sins. We're forgiven. We rightly emphasize that. But oftentimes we look at our lives and we think that disproves the fact that we've been set free also from the power of sin. We think we're slaves. But Scripture promises that you have also been set free from the power of sin. You're not a slave to sin. Now, the presence of sin will always exist. 1 John 1 talks about anyone who says they're not a, they don't have sin, they're a liar. We all have sin. That presence will be taken care of in eternity. But we have been given, uh, forgiven from the penalty of sin, and we've been set free from the power of sin. In other words, you can't say if you're a believer, I can't help it. I can't help it. If you're not a believer and you don't have the knowledge of Christ, you could say that. But believers, we have the spirit which has set us free. You're a new creation. You're not a slave. You're a child of God. You've been liberated and now have the spirit. Do you hold on to that? Do you live by that? Do you rely on that? Are they precious and very great to you? Do you take hold of those promises that you have in Christ Jesus? Do you believe them? I heard an illustration years ago, years ago, from Tim Keller that helped me understand the importance of taking hold of these promises of God. And he mentioned how back in 1865, when the Civil War had just ended, four of the bloodiest years in American history. After that, the South surrendered, and following the surrender of the South, slavery was outlawed throughout the country, and around four million slaves were set free. 
Now, what did those four million slaves do with the freedom that was purchased for them at the cost of much blood? Most of them believed the proclamation and took advantage of that freedom. But what I found super interesting about that is that there was a small minority of them that were set free but went back to being slaves. Why would they do that? Why would they choose to go back to a life of slavery? Slavery. The simple answer is slavery was all they knew. They didn't know anything else besides slavery. Their whole lives they had been slaves and now they were suddenly set free and they didn't know what to do with it. They weren't even sure if they believed it. They didn't know how to take hold of their freedom. They lived as slaves even though they were set free. And so for so many of us, we think the normal, the normal of the Christian life is that I'm a slave to sin. We can't do it. I can't do it. I don't have the ability. I'm not free from this. I can't fight this sin. And we fall into thinking that God has saved us from hell, but he hasn't empowered us or freed us from the power of sin in our life. And we lose the battle before we even begin because we never believe the promises of God. God never tells us to do something that is impossible for us to do. Read Romans 6 through 7. You're not under the reign and rule of sin. You're not meant to live this hopeless battle that leaves you bloodied and defeated. That's not the normal Christian life. Get it out of your head that this is the way Christian life is supposed to be. Do you believe the promises of God? And if you don't believe, then you need to have the prayer of the Father who said, Jesus, can you do this for me? He's like, can I do this? There was a doubt in his mind. And then the man says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. God called us to the knowledge of his glorious and excellent son. And with that knowledge, he gave us divine power so that we have everything we need. And along with that divine power, we have his precious and very great promises so that we can participate in his divine nature. Just be holy. That's the purpose so that in order through the promises, we can know Christ and be like him. And so practically, that just means you take a promise of God, you take true promises of God, you, you put them in your mind during that day that God, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Or Jesus reminds us, he has conquered the world. Do not be troubled. You take those promises and you put them in your mind, you meditate on them, you pray for belief, and you act on them. so that we can become like him. Are his promises precious and very great to you? Next word, effort. Effort. Now, you would think, you would think, and there are these they're so-called theologians, they would argue that, you know, if you have everything pertaining to life and godliness, God has given you his power and his promises, then the next statement would be something like, let go and let God. Sit back, relax, enjoy the flight, enjoy the journey. But verse 3 to 4 is the foundation, and it sets us on, sets us on the path of verse 5 through 7, which says, verse 5, for this very reason, talking about the promises and the, and the power of God, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Because of everything I just said to you in verse 3 through 4, for this reason, make every effort, apply yourself, be diligent in growing in your faith. And I'm not going to be able to go over every word in this passage. I'm giving you some homework. Go through this list of virtues. Virtue, his moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Read through that passage and see where you need to grow. But notice this passage is talking about deeper spiritual things. It's not that different from the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about. This is true spirituality. It's harder to obtain because oftentimes in the church, we start to expect and demand lesser things. 
don't drink, don't smoke, don't have sex, don't party, as if those were the fruit of the Spirit. That, in some ways, just behavioral things, is much easier to acquire or obtain than deeper spiritual things like love, perseverance, a forgiving soul. Those are a deeper measurement of faith, persevering during difficult times. And if you've been a Christian for a little while, you may fall into a line of thinking, well, you know, I've prayed, I've tried to trust God, but I I fail. And in a subtle way, we put the responsibility of our sinful failures on God. We constantly fail to be pure and patient, and we say, well, I can't do it then. I prayed, I've asked God to help me, deliver me, purify me. Unless God does something, I'm going to fail, but he doesn't seem to be doing anything but he's given you everything you need. He's given you his power and his promises. And the problem is you don't make every effort. And for many of us, we hardly make any effort at all. The key isn't letting go and letting God. It's hold on to God and let God. If you want to mature, it's not letting go. It's adding on these things. You have to add on these virtues. And what this passage is doing, you know, like we could say, like, do you want to battle sin? Yeah, I want to battle sin. Do you want to be like Christ? Yeah, I want to be like Christ. And this passage is calling us on our bluff. Well, are you willing to do something about it? Are you just talk? Or are you actually going to back it up? Here's how you do it. You trust in Christ and you make every effort. Trust in his power and don't be complacent. Fully depend on God and don't be passive. Make every effort. And people can, they'll look at what I'm saying right now. Whoa, that's legalistic. This gospel extreme culture, that's legalistic. Don't call people to holiness. I've met people like that. Don't call people to holiness. It's not legalistic, it's biblical. It's in line with the truth of the gospel that if you understand the grace of God, you will respond with grateful obedience and make every effort. He's given us everything we need. And I'll make every effort. You know, everything in our salvation, when you came to faith... That was, everything there was passive. It was passive. You did nothing. That was not a cooperative effort. Your salvation was not a cooperative effort. It was all God. But from that moment on, growing in grace takes cooperation between us and God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because God is at work in us, we are to work out our salvation with all diligence. We recognize we can do nothing apart from Christ, but that doesn't mean we do nothing. It's always dependent discipline. You have to have both. You can't have one of those wings. If you only have one of those wings, you won't fly. You have to have dependence, full trust in the Lord, and you have to have discipline. Make every effort. Apply yourself. God put it in you. Now work it out. Make every effort. Bring in all your efforts alongside of what God is doing in you. And... This may be a reason why, you know, some of us, we've been Christian for years, but we're just, we're just walking around the track. We've been Christian for 10 years, and we just made so little progress. While for some of you, I look at you, you've been Christian a year, and you're running laps. You're sprinting. You know, it's easy for us to say, you know, I don't like this sin. And then we just passively hope it disappears. Or we'll make a little effort. 
but we like to stay close to it. We like to keep it in sight. Maybe we go to DG and we confess our sins and we pray that the Lord will forgive us and we think that's it. When the Bible says that we should be praying, trusting in the Lord, and say, God, I trust you with my sin. I'm trusting you. You have given me the power and I resolve to fight against it. To have the discipline to make a commitment to the Lord. And maybe we'll just fight enough to say we did something and to make ourselves feel better. But the second someone says, well, you know, why don't you do that to fight against your sexual sin? And we say, ah, that's a little too much for me. I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to give up my, my Instagram account. That's too inconvenient. Can we do something a little more balanced? One pastor named Steve Lawson says, spiritual couch potatoes grow little in grace or holiness. Being in prayer, studying the Bible, and then obeying it in your life require serious work. Serious work. That's how you can grow. Put in serious work work. You want to grow in grace and peace? Put yourself on the pathway where the Spirit works. We call those spiritual disciplines or the means of grace, prayer, the Word, fellowship. These are the methods by which God fortifies or strengthens your faith. When you do these things, you're putting yourself in the pathway of the Spirit, but they're serious work. Man, if we want to lead, if you want to lead your wife or your girlfriend or your children, put in the serious work and stop being so passive. Make every effort. There is no room for passivity in spiritual growth. That is not a good quality. It's okay, I understand. If you're chill and relaxed, I wish I was like that. I wish I could be like that. In in life, that's a good thing. But that's not a good thing when it comes to faith, to growing in your faith. If your wife is always the one saying the word let's, if they're the one that's always saying let's put in the effort, let's do this, let's pray, let's work together, We need to repent, guys. I like the word let's because it's a cooperative word and yet it's a leading word. Let's put in the effort to lead our wives, to lead our children, to lead our girlfriends, whoever it is. And maybe making every effort means 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Don't get close to the edge. Don't play with the fire. Value her purity and more than your satisfaction. Put in the serious work. There's like this resistance today where it's like holy sweat. We need to have holy sweat. No, no, no. That's, that's not in line with the gospel. Yes, it is. Get rid of laziness. Get out of cruise control obedience. This is not a Sunday drive. This is not a relaxed walk in the park. We're called to have race car obedience, to strive. And make every effort. Parents, it's not putting our children in the pathway of grace will not just happen when we do nothing. It's going to be serious work while being fully dependent on the Lord. That's a hard, that's hard, right? It's hard to keep both of those in view. We all fall into one extreme or the other. In which areas will you pray for God to work in you as you work? What areas do you need to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? Growing in grace requires serious effort. Last word, assurance. 
assurance. Second Peter 1, 8-9 says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter ends this section in verse 10. We'll actually talk more about verse 10 on Easter Sunday. But he says, keep growing, keep growing, guys, keep growing, because when you stop growing, you'll be ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. And if that's you, if you're lacking in these qualities, if you're lacking in these virtues, if you're not growing in them, you've become so nearsighted that you're practically blind. And it's a warning for those who are Christians who started the race years ago and are now just standing around on the track. You stop growing and slowly your sight is disappearing. And I could think of plenty of people, you know, whether pastors I knew back then in college or in seminary or just friends that were running along in the faith alongside of me. Their vision was clear. They came to Christ. They evangelized. The gospel was significant to them. But now decades have passed, and it's no longer clear. It's not black and white. The gospel is not black and white to them. Everything is gray. There's no conviction. They might still be Christian, but it's all so vague and blurry and unclear. And it says these people have forgotten from, they have forgotten they were cleansed from their sin. Does that mean like they actually forgot they were cleansed from their sin? That's not what it's saying. This idea of forgetting is not a cognitive, like they don't remember it anymore, but they've lost their significance. And their sin and their behavior points to the fact that they've forgotten the significance of what happened to them when they were saved. You know, I can recount, you, know, you can recount in your testimony, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and then on and on, but now I was saved from my sins. I was cleansed from my sins. I was forgiven of my sins. And back then that meant something to them. It was an amazing privilege and they've lost sight of it. It's not really a big deal anymore. Now they talk about, oh yeah, that was, that was the season I took church seriously, but It's not amazing grace anymore, and they've become ineffective and unfruitful. So nearsighted, all they can see is what's right in front of them. They have no heavenly or eternal perspective. All they see is earth. Do some self-examination. When did you realize that God had forgiven you? That you had been cleansed from your sins? Has that lost its significance to you? Does it seem blurry? Have you closed your eyes to the glory of Christ? If so, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make uh, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And if you notice, he said something similar earlier in verse 5 through 7. He says, make every effort to grow in your faith. Work hard. Apply yourself. Be diligent to add these qualities to your faith so that you won't be fruitless and ineffective. Here in verse 10, he says, there's something I want you to be even more diligent about. What should we be even more diligent about? Peter says, you need to be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm for who? God? Does God need to like, be confirmed in his knowledge that you're elect? No, it's not talking about God. Confirm for yourself if you're saved. Because what if I asked you, are you a Christian? And you said, yeah. And I said, are you sure? I'm not sure. Isn't it important for you to be sure? Are you part of the elect? Are you called? Are you a believer? And Peter is talking about this concept that theologians term the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation. And that's this idea of security, safety. You know you are convinced. 
And every Christian, probably every one of us, especially when we're starting off the journey, we have moments where we aren't certain if we're saved. These doubts may enter into your mind, might even lead to despair. And so many Christians nowadays lack assurance of God's love, his forgiveness, eternal life. They're not sure if they're called and elect. They're not sure they're saved, but they're not sure if they're saved. God wants his people to have assurance. Did you know that? God wants you to know you're saved. Colossians 2.2, to reach all the riches of full assurance. Hebrews 6.11, to have full assurance of the hope that is to come. Hebrews 10.22, to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. 1 John 3.19, to know we are of the truth and have our hearts reassured before God. He wants you to be reassured, to have assurance. He doesn't want you living in doubt. He wants you to be sure of his promises, have Assurance of hope and eternal life, to live life abundantly, to know that I am Christ and He is mine, to hold on to that promise and know it's true. And as a, I guess, a side point, but an important side point, in 2 Corinthians, Paul warns, it's a different audience in 2 Corinthians, he's warning these professing believers who are living in outright disobedience. These are so-called professing believers that have given a lot of reason and evidence to doubt their salvation. And so to them, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And one of my jobs as a pastor is to help people to help my church understand the truth about your spiritual condition. And especially nowadays in our culture, it's very possible to think you're saved when you're not. If you're just a churchgoer, you don't take your faith seriously. You're not bothered by your sin. You're living in disobedience. We need to ask ourselves, am I really of the faith? Are you really a Christian? This passage is a strong warning. Ask yourself, examine to see whether your faith is really your own or if it was just passed on to you by your parents, whether it's truly in Christ or I just want to be close to the church. Nobody is saved because you made a profession of faith, you signed a card, you walked down the aisle, you made a prayer. You're not saved because you profess that. It's because you possess faith. And for those who are not Christians but think they are, 2 Corinthians gives a warning that there needs to be alarms going off in your mind and your heart. That's Paul. But going back to 2 Peter, Peter is writing because he wants his believers to have assurance of salvation, and so he calls them to remember the gospel, wake up, and live as to confirm your election. Live out your faith. Be confident in Christ. Walk in faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and so on. And as these things are increasing in you, you won't be unfruitful and ineffective, rather, and you won't fall away or stumble. If you close your eyes to the beauty of God's promises in Christ, go back to the gospel, remember its significance, and day by day live a life of holiness that confirms your salvation, that confirms your calling. Your election. Because it's not, I see it in other Christians, I see it in people. It's not motivating. If every day you're playing like that game where you have a flower petal, it's like, he loves me. He loves me not. I sinned today, he doesn't love me. Or on the bad day, good day scenario, you know, on this day, and I feel like I'm right with the Lord. But over here, I sinned today. Now I'm no longer forgiven. That is not where God wants you to be. If you don't have assurance or security of salvation, if you're not sure, it's not motivating. It's discouraging to have such a weak hope. Will I be in heaven? Am I going to hell? Am I really forgiven? Am I really loved? There's not much hope there. But when you know when it's settled, when it's confirmed, you'll be like the tree that is planted near a stream of living water. It'll be settled and you'll bear more fruit. 
You'll live the life of abundance that Jesus promised. One pastor named R.C. Sproul says, if you want to have a fruitful Christian life to grow in grace, one of the most important things you can do is early on in your walk is to make sure of your election or salvation. How do we do that? Growing in virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Growing in these qualities doesn't earn you salvation, just to be clear. It doesn't earn you salvation, but they are evidence that can confirm that your trust in Christ is true. They can confirm our calling election. Assurance of salvation is a gift to those who, by the grace of God, exercise their faith and bear fruit. It's a gift to those whose faith has been tested and proven. It's a gift that God has to give you. I can't give that to you. Someone asked me recently, I'm like, do you know if I'm saved? I was like, I think that's something the Lord, the Spirit, has to give you if you look at 1 John 3.19. It's a gift that God gives you. And there's like this kind of like reciprocal relationship between fruit and assurance. Fruit leads to assurance. Spiritual fruit and growth leads to insurance. And more assurance leads to greater fruit because you're so settled in God's promises. How can you grow if you're constantly unsure if Christ actually loves you? That's not the place I would want you to be. To always live in fear and doubt of what God has said to you. But for those who don't have fruit, this section, it is a calling. It's a wake-up call to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Assurance isn't given to the lazy, disobedient Christian People who are living in disobedience rather than growing in grace, they forfeit the blessing of assurance and security. It's a blessing. And we forfeit that blessing when we fail to live out our faith. And so he says, go back and remember the significance of the gospel. You've forgotten it. You've forgotten it. Stop standing there on the track. Wake up. See the glory of Christ, His excellence, His glory, His promises, which are flawless. In Romans 8.38, in the ESV, it says, For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to be sure. To my brothers and sisters who are struggling to be convinced. I like how the NASB, for I am convinced Paul wants you to be sure, convinced. Peter wants you to confirm and confirm your calling election. I want you to have the peace that comes from assurance to have that safety. But put aside a lazy faith. Stop drifting. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Take hold of your freedom. Run the race with perseverance. Press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Rely on his power. Trust in his promises. Make every effort to grow. And in this way, you will confirm your election to have full insurance and confidence. And one day, I can't wait to talk about this next week, 2 Peter chapter, two, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 says, There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It's such a challenging passage. And we need your spirit to work in us wherever we are, to meet us at our point of need. For the believers here who have affection for Christ,
your word in Romans 8 says that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And may your spirit himself bear witness to our spirits that we are children of God. And God, we need your spirit. There's a lot of voices, maybe our own voice of condemnation, the voices of the world that would want to condemn us, the voices of Satan that would want to deceive us. But it's your spirit and your voice that we need to hear as our witness, as our intercessor, as our helper, as the one who will testify to our hearts that we are your children, that we will not be in fear. And so would you stir up our hearts, wake us up, help us to be diligent to confirm, to be clear in our hearts that we belong to you. And may we grow in grace. Father, if there's anyone in here who has not put their trust and faith in you, we pray that your spirit would cause them to examine themselves. And draw them to you in the beauty and glory and excellence of Christ. And that they would be saved. God, help us not in our pride to depend on ourselves. But to trust in you and rely on you. But help us also not in our laziness to do nothing. But because of your mercies. I pray that we would respond in obedience and pursue holiness. And so, God, we need you. We need you. We need your spirit to be at work, to give assurance to your children, and to wake up those who are not your children. So bless us and protect us. May your face shine on us, and may we hear your voice through your word. May we see the glory of Christ and remember that we have been cleansed from our sins. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.